We have yet another double Parsha. Of course, as you know, during non-leap years, we have to still read the whole Torah, but we have fewer weeks to do it, so we have to double up some of the Parsha sections, and this week we are ending off Leviticus. For some people, it's a little bittersweet to say goodbye to Leviticus. Some of y'all, I'm sure, are thrilled, but we're going to wrap up, please God. The book of Leviticus, the book of Vayikra, with Behar and Bechukosai. Of course, Behar talks about Shemitah and Yovel, amongst several other laws. And Bechukosai is primarily the admonition of Leviticus. It starts off with the positive, if you are good, if you walk in God's ways, if you heed his instructions, you will be blessed. You'll have rain, you'll have crops, you'll have fruit, you'll have security, peace in the land. There won't be any enemies, no wild animals, no war. When you do encounter enemies, you'll pursue them, you'll crush them, you'll grow You'll proliferate, you'll be fruitful, and you will multiply, and you'll have a relationship with the Almighty, and He's going to maintain His covenant with you, and you'll have so much wealth and bounty, you'll be able to eat last year's produce. God will be with you. He will not reject you. Things will just be wonderful. That is how Parshish B'chukosai starts off, and if that's where it ended, it would be a much more cheerful Parsha. But then it talks about the negative. But if you reject God, and you reject his Torah, and you reject his mitzvos, then you will be subject to harsh, brutal maledictions. And this is so depressing and so hard to read that the tradition is that when they read it in shul, they read it really quickly in an undertone to not get too depressed because it continues for dozens and dozens of verses describing all these terrible things that will befall us in the event that we reject God. It starts off with physical ailments, lesions, and fever, and we're going to have fruitless crops, and we'll be struck down by the enemy, and we'll have this delirious fleeing from the enemy that doesn't even exist. And all this, of course, is there to encourage us to repent And if we don't improve, we don't take the lessons home, there will be more maledictions, more punishments. The temple will be destroyed. The heaven will be like iron, not yielding rain. The earth will be like copper. And we won't have any fruits, and we won't have any vegetables, and we won't have any crops. And what does grow will not reach maturity. And then we have a third series of seven curses, and a fourth series, and a fifth series, very difficult to read. Our Parsha talks about just absolute devastating things that will befall us in the event that we don't comply, adhere to the word of God. But it ends with a positive and comforting note, and that is, this is in chapter 26, verse 42, God promises, I will remember the covenant of Jacob and also the covenant of Isaac and also the covenant of Abraham, I will remember and the land I will remember. And even when you are in the land of your enemies, I won't despise you. I won't disdain you. I won't completely destroy you. I won't renege upon my covenant for I am Hashem, your God. I'll remember the covenant of the earlier ones that I took them out of the land of Egypt to the eyes of all the nations to be for them a God. I am Hashem. So this is kind of the, the Parsha. But of course, afterwards, you still have some other laws, the laws of the valuations of a person. But the Parsha, Parsha's Bechotos had the second of our two Parsha portions that we read this week. It's all about the consequences of our behavior. If we make good choices and we embrace the Almighty and His Torah and His mitzvot, then He will respond in kind. Measure for measure, we'll have blessing. If we betray God and we reject His Torah and we repudiate our national mission, then He will batter us until we come back to Him. But it ends that notwithstanding everything that we do, 
And no matter how much we betray God, he is not going to totally abandon us. He's not going to totally forsake us. He will remember the covenant of Abram, of Isaac and Jacob, presented in the opposite order. Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. He's going to remember the Exodus. We will endure. We will survive. In this Parsha podcast episode, recording from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, from the glorious studios that I admit it's a little bit untidy. I could fix things up here a little bit. And for you, it makes no difference because the microphone is pristine. We're recording this Parsha podcast. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalbejimit.com. Send me an email with some feedback, with a question, with a comment. Don't be shy. Today, we're going to focus on a most incredible verse and a most incredible Rashi in chapter 26, verse 42. This is, again, after reading dozens of verses, of spine-chilling verses, of all these awful, terrible things that will happen to us. God says, I will remember the covenant of Jacob. I will remember the covenant of Isaac. I will remember the covenant of Abraham. I will remember the land. You won't be completely destroyed. You have this ace up your sleeve. You have this silver bullet. You are guaranteed to endure. Not because of necessarily your own righteousness, but due to the fact that you descend from such tremendous royalty, you descend from Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and God made a covenant with each one of these, a binding and enduring covenant, and that will stand for you in the worst of times that you may find yourself. So that's the verse, a very powerful verse. What an idea. Right after you're reading all these terrible curses that are going to befall the people, and by the way, historically have happened to our nation, you have this one verse of consolation, this verse of comfort that God's not going to forget these covenants with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and we will endure. That's the verse. And listen to this Rashi. There's actually three different comments that Rashi makes on this verse. And we'll go through them one at a time. We're going to focus only on one of them. The first thing he tells us is that when the verse says, V'zacharti is brisi Yaakov, I will remember my covenant with Jacob. The word Jacob is spelled differently than how the word Jacob is spelled throughout the whole Torah. The word Jacob appears hundreds of times in the Torah. And every single time it's spelled the same way. A yod, an ayin, a kuf, and a vet. That's how it's spelled in the whole Torah. In this verse, chapter 26, verse 42, there is an extra letter. There is a vav after the kuf. An extra letter. Only once in the whole Torah is Jacob thus spelled. Rashi tells us it's actually once in the Torah, but it's five places throughout Scripture. In five places, in five locations, in five verses throughout Scripture, the word Jacob is spelled full. And in five places, the word Elijah, Eliyahu, Elijah is spelled missing. Five times, there is an extra vav, in the word Jacob, Yaakov. And five times the word Eliyahu, Elijah, is spelled missing above. And the only time in the Torah is in this verse. Tells us Rashi, this is not a coincidence. This is not an oversight. It wasn't like the, the editor missed this. Jacob took the letter Vav from Elijah, from Elijah's name. He took it as a hostage. Why? To guarantee, as collateral, to guarantee that Elijah will come and will herald the redemption of Jacob's 
children. This is a lot to unpack here. On a basic level, just understand what we're talking about. Hebrew is a confusing, well, it can be confusing as a language. And one of the reasons why it's confusing, even though it actually makes much more sense than any other language, one of the reasons why it's different is that vowels sometimes appear as letters and sometimes appear as invisible nikudot, so like dots and dashes and other symbols that go above and below the letters. So imagine a word that's just consonants. There's no vowels, but the vowels appear as dots or dashes above and below those consonants, those letters. And the word Yaakov, so that the last vowel, the ov, the, the o sound, everywhere in the Torah, the word Jacob, the word Yaakov, is spelled without a vowel appearing as a letter. And the only exception is our verse. And there are other examples of this where, where words are spelled differently in different places. And when the vowel is visible as a letter, then in the uh, Midrashic literature, the, the word is full because all the letters are present. And when the vowel is invisible, it's just a nikudot, part of the nikudot system, then the word is lacking. And there's a message behind it. There's a reason behind it. You know, if you have a Torah scroll and every single letter is there, and in this verse, chapter 26, verse 42, the word Yaakov is spelled the way Yaakov is spelled the rest of the Torah. If you just want to have uniformity, I want to have all my Jacobs spelled the same way. I don't like it. it. It doesn't feel right that the word Yaakov, Jacob, is spelled differently than how it's spelled the rest of the Torah. That Torah scroll is invalid. If you use it, you have to reread from the Torah because the Torah scroll is not valid. The only way a Torah scroll can be valid is if in this verse, chapter 26, verse 42, the word Yaakov is spelled differently than how it's spelled the rest of the Torah. And this is a phenomenon we've seen a few times. You recall, we spoke about this a few times, that the, the princes of the tribes, they were criticized for not contributing towards the fundraising effort of the Mishkan of the tabernacle, and they only gave, at the very end, there was nothing else to give, and they gave the stones for the Choshen, for the breastplate, and for the ephod. And the way that they are criticized in the Torah is that a letter is deducted from their name. And the word Nesim, Nesim, the Nesim, the princes, it's spelled without the letter Yud. And the way that works is that the letter Yud can appear as a vowel in the form of a letter, or... It can appear, it, it cannot appear, it can be taken away, it can be reduced, diminished, deducted from the word. The word will still be pronounced the same way, but the vowels will be the nikudot system, not with a letter. Jacob, throughout the whole Torah, it's always spelled missing, meaning the vowel is hidden, it's not in the form of a letter. In this verse alone, and four other places in Scripture, but this verse alone in the whole Torah, it's spelled with the extra vav, a vowel letter is inserted. And again, there are five places in Scripture. You have this one, and you have four other times in the book of Jeremiah. And those five extra vavs, they come from somewhere. Jacob took them, Rashi tells us. Of course, Rashi's always given us the simple interpretation. And Rashi has a problem. Why is Jacob misspelled? Anywhere else in the Torah, if you spell with the Atravav, it's, it's misspelled. That Torah scroll would also be invalid. Where did these Vavs come from, Rashi tells us? It comes from Elijah. Because corresponding to the five places where Jacob has an Atravav, are five places where Elijah, where Eliyahu, El- Elijah, it's spelled Eliyah, not Eliyahu, it's missing the Vav. And they are four verses in the book of Kings and one at the very end of the prophets. 
in chapter 3 of the book of Malachi, says Rashi, Jacob seized the Vav from Elijah five times as an assurance, as a guarantee, as collateral, that Elijah will come and herald the redemption of the nation. This is an incredible comment in Rashi. And again, Rashi is always trying to interpret it in, in a simple way. We know that there are many facets and dimensions of Torah, deeper dimensions. Every, every verse can be interpreted in four different dimensions, but really on 49 different dimensions, but really on 70 different facets. And Rashi is always trying to give us the, the way that reconciles the verse in a simple way. And this is the simplest he could do for us. The reason why there's an extra vav in the word Yaakov Jacob, it has to do with Elijah and Jacob taking one of the letters of Elijah's name, doing this five times, but taking five letters from five different words out of the name Elijah and taking it for himself. And that's there to guarantee, Rashi tells us, that Elijah will herald the redemption. An incredible Rashi, and we'll get back to it in a little bit. Now, Rashi offers two more comments. Again, very, very profound ideas. The first thing he tells us is that you'll notice that in this verse, it goes in the opposite direction from the chronology. It starts off with Jacob, and then it goes to Isaac, and then to Abraham. You know, typically, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does it go backwards? So Rashi gives us another very interesting and profound and intriguing idea. That even if we only had Jacob, God will remember the covenant of Jacob and that will be sufficient to save us. And you know what? If he's not meritorious, then we have Isaac with him. And if they're together not meritorious, then we have Abraham. An interesting idea in Rashi. And finally, Rashi tells us that the verse says, I will remember the covenant of Jacob and the covenant of Isaac. And the covenant of Abram, I will remember. The term I will remember is applied to the covenant of Jacob and to the covenant of Abraham, but not to the covenant of Isaac. And the question is why? And Rashi says another very profound thing. There is no need to remember Isaac. Abraham, you need to remember. Jacob, you need to remember. But Isaac, Isaac's righteousness that can stand up for his descendants, that is not something that you need to remember. It's always present before God. The binding of Isaac and Isaac's self-sacrifice and Isaac's decision, his faith, his indomitable spirit to be willing to die as a sacrifice for God, that righteousness is so present It's as if his ashes are gathered together and presented before God at all times. And therefore, Jacob, he was righteous. But God, so to speak, we need to remember that. We need to evoke that. Abraham, same thing. But Isaac, there's no need to add the verb, so to speak. I will remember. There's no need to remember it. It's right there in front of God at all times. Now, of course, this is another very profound Rashi, and it probably relates to the Talmud that tells us that Isaac is the one who is able to present a winning argument to God in the future. Abraham is going to fail. Jacob is going to fail. But Isaac will triumph. It may relate to that. But I want to focus on the first comment in Rashi the most mysterious of the comments in Rashi. And that is that Jacob spelled full with an extra vav. There's an extra letter, the vav, in the word Jacob. And this was taken from Elijah as a means to guarantee that Elijah is going to come and present this tiding, this positive tiding of redemption. So, of course, there are many, many questions that we can ask. You know, the whole idea of Elijah coming and heralding 
and presenting a tiding and being a harbinger of redemption of Messiah, it's a strange idea. What's his role? Why is he needed? What is so special? What's so indispensable? What's so important about having Elijah come and heralding the Messiah? Why did Jacob have to take a collateral? It's implied from this is that, you know, Elijah would need some extra motivation to come and reclaim your letter. You want your letter back? I'll only give it to you if you herald the redemption. So evidently, there is at least a risk that Elijah will be reluctant to come do what he needs to do. Or maybe the people will not be deserving of Elijah. And, and Jacob's trying to compel him, trying to force his hand by taking five times, doing this five times, but taking a letter from his name as hostage. Very, very strange, very mysterious. So we have the whole idea of Elijah and him coming to herald the redemption. That's something that we need to understand. And and Jacob's role and the connection between Jacob and, and Elijah, why specifically Jacob, not Abraham, not Isaac, why the Vav, why five times? Of course, maybe the most mysterious of this is what is the mechanism of seizing a letter, of taking a letter hostage? How does that work? It's obvious to everyone that we stumbled upon a comment in Rashi that's so profound, so deep, so esoteric, so arcane, it's not going to be easily understood. I did see an essay from Pachan Yitzchak, and he's focusing on, on Jacob and Elijah. He talks about the connection between the two. They both overcame death. The Talmud tells us that Jacob didn't die. And Elijah ascended to heaven in a chariot of fire. And Elijah is Pinchas, and Elijah occasionally reappears, and he's going to revive the dead. And that's somehow connected with a lot of a very advanced, very profound essay. But he starts it off by saying, everyone knows, you read this Rashi, and you know that you have stumbled upon a very deep secret and he begins this by saying, well, we, we don't know. See, secrets are beyond us, but we're going to try to present the, the, uh, the issue as we see. And of course, we realize this as well. And this is a Rashi that we read. Let's see if we can understand it or if there's anything about it that we can understand. Let's try to break off a small piece. Maybe we can learn something from this incredible Rashi. Now, just for the background, we know that Elijah is one of the most interesting and mysterious characters of our history. And there's an idea, and we say this in the prayers, and it appears all over our literature. Elijah is destined to herald the arrival of Messiah. Elijah is associated with redemption. Now, Elijah according to many of our sources, is another name for Pinchas. Of course, Pinchas is Aaron's grandson. And we're told that Elijah participates in every bris, and we pour a cup, the cup of Elijah at the Seder. We open the door for him. We hope he, he's going to come. And he's this prophet that transitioned into an angel, and he could still reappear and there are many stories in the Talmud where he comes to visit the great sages, even in modern times. I don't know if I've ever said this in the podcast. But even in modern times, there are reliable and documented accounts of some of the great sages meeting and having a visitation from Elijah. But somehow he makes his way into our Parsha. And when we're we're talking about our nation in our lowest point, in our nadir. After dozens of curses that are unleashed upon us, we have a verse of comfort. God's going to remember Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. We will endure. And the word Jacob is misspelled. It has an extra letter, a letter that he took hostage from Elijah. And that's there to make sure that when we're in the dumps, 
and we're suffering tremendously, and we're in need of salvation, Elijah's going to come and redeem us. And he's going to herald the redemption, and he's going to herald the release from our plight. And that's why the word Jacob is spelled with the extra vav that he took from Elijah. I will note that in the context of Elijah slash Pinchas, we see the idea of a vav being taken as hostage of some sort, of some degree, elsewhere in the Torah, in the beginning of Parshas Pinchas. Pinchas has a whole parsha named after him in the book of Numbers. After his heroic action of zealotry, he is given a blessing of a covenant of peace. God gives him brisi shalom, my covenant of peace. And if you look in a Torah scroll, you'll notice that that vav of the word shalom, it has an unusual feature that appears exactly once in the Torah. And that is there's a line going through the vav. So we have two vavs that are once in the Torah phenomenons, one in our, our verse, in our parsha, the word vav appearing in the, the name Yaakov, Jacob. And once there's a vav that is cut up, the vav ketiah of the word shalom. That's also related to Pinchas. And Pinchas is another name for Elijah, we are told. And the Baal Turim, one of the great commentators of, on the Torah, he connects these two vavs together. And he says the word shalom, in the context of brisi shalom, my covenant of peace, has a broken vav. Why? Because Pinchas is Elijah. And Elijah, he has the vav taken away from him. And Jacob takes it. And Jacob takes it as a collateral to ensure that Messiah will come. And when Messiah comes, as heralded by Elijah, Jacob will give the vav back to Elijah. Similarly, the vav, so to speak, that's given to Pinchas, otherwise known as Elijah, it's cut up. You don't, you cannot have the vav. You cannot have the vav completely until you do your job and herald the Messiah. And he tells us the word shalom, as in my covenant of peace, it's the same gematria as the word Mashiach. Why? Because this is all connected. There's a whole story here. Elijah slash Pinchas, they play a very crucial role, or he plays a very crucial role in bringing Messiah. But for some reason, there's a need for a little bit of a nudge. And therefore, Jacob says, uh, the vav, both the vav of your name, I'm going to take it, and the vav of the covenant of peace, it's going to be broken. Only once you do your job will you have the vav back restored to you. Very, very, very interesting. And again, I'm fully acknowledging, I'm saying it to everyone who's listening. This is very mysterious. This is very esoteric. And we don't really know what we're talking about, of course. But it's in Rashi, and we have to study it nonetheless. So a few things just before we get started here. A few basic questions. You know, why the letter Vav? A lot of the literature about this Rashi orients around the question, why, why Vav? That's not just a random letter. Oh, we'll pick any letter. We, we could pick the Aleph, the Lamed, the Yud, etc. Why Vav? Question number one. Question number two, why five? There are five times in Scripture, only once in the Torah, but five times in Scripture that the word Yaakov, Jacob, has the extra vav. And five times correspondingly, Elijah is spelled without the vav. Wouldn't one hostage letter be sufficient? Now, again, I find this, this whole subject, I find it so fascinating, so interesting, even though you know, we acknowledge that we cannot understand everything that's going on over here. Whatever we do understand, whatever we can glean, it is very interesting. And I think it's worth 
our time, and our focus. So the essay I mentioned earlier, Pachan Yitzchak, he spends a lot of time talking about the Vav. Vav is a connection. The word Vav, when it appears in a, in a word as a prefix, it means and. And there are many indications that the letter Vav corresponds to their future redemption, and thus it's a fitting letter to hold captive. The Maharal has a very nice idea. He says that if you have an agreement or a, a collateral, it's something like a handshake, and a hand has five fingers, and the, the way a vav looks like, it's kind of like a digit. It's kind of like a finger. And therefore, the letter vav is taken away. And five of them, to mimic, so to speak, a hand and a handshake, Oh, and the gematria vav is six times five is 30. And the, the Mishnah tells us that there are 30 bones in the hand. It all works out nicely. This is the handshake, so to speak, between Jacob and Elijah. But regarding the, the main subject of Rashi, Elijah is destined to herald the imminent arrival of Messiah. Evidently, this is Elijah's job. This is his role. And he's the only one that can do it. And one theory about this is, we know that prophecy went extinct. And is going to be resurrected in the times of Messiah. But if you need prophecy, to determine that we are, in fact, in the Messianic era, and prophecy itself can only be resurrected with the Messiah. So how does this whole process get? So it's a chicken and egg problem. It's the collective action problem. It's a two-sided marketplace problem. And one of the theories is that that's where Elijah comes in, because Elijah's still alive. He never died. He went up to heaven in this chariot. He's still alive, and thus we have a living prophet, and he can usher in this next era. He could be the one who can herald the Messiah and kind of make that transition and give it legitimacy from a pre-Messianic era to the Messianic era. The Talmud talks about this. According to the Talmud, it'll be the day before Messiah comes. And that's why Messiah cannot come on a Shabbos or a festival because Elijah won't come on a Friday or the day before a festival because the people are too busy preparing for Shabbos and for the festival. And they won't have the capacity to deal with Elijah quite uh, as fitting for him. There is a more elaborate description in the Midrash that talks about Elijah going on top of the mountain and crying and bewailing and eulogizing and talking about the mountains of the land of Israel. Why are you empty and desolate? And his voice will reverberate throughout the whole world. And then he'll announce peace is coming. And then he'll make an announcement on the next day and then the third day, and then Messiah will come. This is just a fascinating idea that uh, we don't talk about a lot. You know, on my other channel, one of my other podcast channels, as you know, I have a few other channels, and if you like the Parsha podcast, you should sample some of the other shows. But on my Torah 101 show, we're going through the 13 principles of faith with great rigor, and we're in principle number 12. There are, there are 13 principles that undergird our religion, and principle number 12 is the idea of Messiah. And I just recorded this week the 10th episode in our study of Messiah, and we're about halfway done. So we're doing this very comprehensively and very rigorously. So I'm, I'm really curious about the subject because Elijah has a role to play and what exactly his role is and what does he need to do? What's the purpose of Elijah's coming to herald Messiah? And why would he not, why, why, why would he be reluctant? Like, why do, why does Jacob have to force him? To me, I've not found an answer yet to that question. It seems like Jacob is concerned Elijah won't want to do his job. And therefore he takes his 
Vav, five times he does it. He teaches Vavs as hostage. Very, very, very interesting. Maybe as an answer. Well, first of all, the, the Mishnah at the very end of Idios brings four different opinions as to what Elijah, what his role is. The Talmud talks about how Elijah is there to solve unresolved halachic dilemmas. There's a nice Ramban that I saw as well. This is in chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, when it talks about the war against Amalek, the first war that our nation waged. He says, he has a nice line, he says, whatever Moshe and Joshua did with Amalek, Messiah ben Joseph, which is the first Messiah, and Elijah the prophet will do in Messianic times. So it makes sense, you know, that obviously Elijah has a very important role to play, and Jacob is worried about it, and he's trying to force Elijah's hand. The only way you can reclaim your letter, I'm only going to release it if you do your job and herald Messiah. Now, what's not so clear is why Elijah would be reluctant to do it. Why is there a need to compel him? Why would he not be self-motivated to do it? But here's, I think, the, the little corner of this subject that I want to pursue. This is obviously a crucial need for the whole nation. We don't exactly understand why it's so critical to have Elijah come to herald redemption. But obviously, it's very important. Yet the one to take the very drastic measures to ensure that he'll do it, that's Jacob. Why doesn't Abraham do it or Isaac? You can make the argument, well, Jacob has more to lose because he doesn't have any of the problematic children. He has no wing of his family. That's Ishmael or Esav. But I want to suggest perhaps another idea that explains maybe the the some of the deeper the deeper themes in this very interesting subject. Many people in the Torah have their names changed. Abraham used to be Abraham. Sarah used to be Sarai. Joshua, he was called, he's Yehoshua. He used to be Hosea. And what's interesting about all the people that have their names changed in the Torah, one name is discarded and they completely adopt their new name with the exception of Jacob. Jacob also has two names in the Torah. He's called Jacob, of course, and he's also called Israel. Yet the Torah uses both names. Isn't that interesting? Why does the Torah use two different names for the same person? There are sometimes where even in a single verse, you have scripture flip-flopping between Jacob and Israel. Why not just stick to one? It's prohibited to call Abraham, Avraham. It's prohibited to call him Abraham or Sarah, Sarai, they completely dropped their previous persona, but somehow Jacob is able to juggle, so to speak, both the identity of, of Yaakov, of Jacob, and that of Israel, of Yisrael. And he's called both, but it seems random as to why he's called, sometimes he's called Jacob, and sometimes he's called Israel. So there's an amazing essay by the Arachayim. Arachayim, of course, one of the great commentators on the Torah. In the beginning of Parshas Vayechi, the final installment of the book of Genesis, he has a comprehensive essay where he explains the difference between Jacob and the Jacob persona and the Jacob name versus Israel. And his general theme is that when Jacob is ascendant, he is up, he is positive. Things are going well for him. 
In those instances, he's called Yisrael, Israel. And when he's down, and when he's struggling, and he's dealing with a crisis, then he's called Jacob. So after his name change, of course, before his name change, he's just Jacob. But after his name change, he now has these two identities. And when things are going well, he's Yisrael, he's Israel. And when things are going not well, when he's down, when he's depressed, when he's suffering, then he is still called by the old name. He's still called Jacob. And he goes through all the events. It's an amazing piece. All the events of Jacob's life after he has the name change or the name addition. And he shows why he's called either Yaakov, Jacob, or Yisrael, Israel. So when he was mourning over Rebekah, he's called Jacob. And when Rachel died, he's called Jacob. And after the mourning period concluded, then he's called Israel. And he has a whole other side piece as to why the sons of Jacob are sometimes called the sons of Jacob and sometimes they're called the sons of Israel. And when Reuben had his run-in with Bila, well, then he was a son of Jacob, not Israel. And when Jacob encountered Isaac again, he's meeting his father, the son before the father must have a posture of humility. So he's called Jacob and not Israel. And in general, when he's in Canaan, he's called Jacob. But when he loved Joseph, and he has this very warm, positive feeling towards Joseph, the verse tells us that Israel loved Joseph from all his sons. And once Joseph is sold into slavery, Jacob is mired in depression, and he's called Jacob, because now things are bad. And when he discovers that Joseph is alive, he resumes his Israel persona. And he he does show the few exceptions during the time when Joseph was missing. During those 22 years, there are a few exceptions where he does adopt the Israel name because he is temporarily dominant and ascendant. When he's told about his descent into exile, he's called Jacob. When he meets Joseph, he's called Israel. In Egypt, he's almost exclusively called Jacob. When he's about to die, he gets strengthened as righteous people do. And then he gets the name of Israel. And the Arachim ends his essay by telling us, anytime you see the name Jacob or Israel, study it and you'll see that this principle is true when he's doing well, when he's successful, when he's triumphing, he's Israel. And when he is suffering, when he's at the mercy of others, when he is dealing with one of the myriad crises of his life, he is called Jacob. The story of Jacob is, is one of exile. His whole life he's struggling, he's fighting, he's contending with the various sources of conflict in his life. You know, even before he's born, he's fighting in utero with this arch enemy with Asaph. And when he's born, at the very beginning of their life, like the kids being born, there's already this cosmic struggle of good versus bad. And his whole life, he, you know, he wants to sit in the tent. He wants to study. He wants to dwell in the tent of Torah. But he's forced out of it. And he's forced to act in a way that violates his inborn characteristics. He's forced to steal the blessings, and then he has to flee, and he has to contend with Laban and all of his shenanigans for 20 years. And then he's reunited with Asa who wants to kill him. And then he has to contend with a fractious relationship amongst his sons. And Dina, his daughter, is kidnapped and abused, and the sons slaughter the whole city, and then Joseph is gone, and he ends up in Egypt. The whole character arc of Jacob is one of exile. We know that Abraham instituted the morning prayer and Isaac the afternoon prayer. And Jacob, he does the night prayer when it's dark. His whole story, his whole, his whole life was one of darkness. And his role in our history or his storyline really serves as a blueprint for our people. 
He's the one who shows us how to endure at night, not just at night, but proverbial night, during exile, during suffering, during persecution, during expulsion. Our nation has experienced that essentially nonstop for thousands of years. What gives us the strength? What gives us the guidance, the direction for how to deal with nighttime? Well, that is what we learned and we absorbed from Jacob. And it's an amazing thing. Every time the word Yaakov is spelled in the Torah, with one exception, it's spelled missing, lacking. It doesn't have all the letters that it should have. The story of Jacob is a story of deficiency. We don't have everything that we need. His name is spelled lacking because his role, his job, his essence is that he's placed in a very disadvantaged situation. That's the role of Jacob. He is placed in an unenviable situation, in very trying circumstances. He's in exile. He's in constant conflict. He's unable to rest and relax. And when he does, even more tribulations descend upon him. His whole life is one of challenges from every direction. And that is his essence. That's his name. It's lacking. It's not ideal. Yet, Jacob thrives. Jacob flourishes. He's able to build the nation. His 12 sons are going to become the 12 tribes. If you, if you look at his life and you look at the results of his life, it, it, you would never put those two together. How could someone who went through so much, who endured so much, how is it possible that they could, they could create such an incredible, enduring legacy? What gave Jacob the strength to endure such hardships? Perhaps this is part of the subtext here of Rashi. Jacob is naturally lacking. But until the salvation came, he had a guarantee of redemption. He had a letter that he was holding hostage. He has this vav that he took from Elijah, and that's there to ensure that redemption will happen. Jacob lived his whole life, and it was all darkness, with brief lapses of light. But in the darkness at night, he always had an assurance that redemption will yet come. Things will work out in the end. And perhaps that foreknowledge gave him the strength to endure all the trying hardships and tribulations that he endured, that he experienced in the exile. I was thinking, if you look at Jacob's life, we see this recurring pattern. It's not just this letter that he seized from Elijah. Whenever Jacob is about to enter a situation that would threaten him, that would imperil him potentially, that would imperil others if they were given the same challenge, it always begins with an assurance it starts at the very beginning. In the very beginning, he's born, and who comes out before him? Asaph has the head start. And of course, this conflict that began before they were born, this is everything. This matters tremendously. And who has the head start? Jacob starts off disadvantaged. But what happens at the very beginning? He grabs the heel of Asaph. And Rashi there tells us, this is in Parshas told us, of course, that this is a sign. At the very beginning of his life, he's given a sign. 
you will ultimately triumph. Jacob is told by his mother, he's forced by his mother, to steal the blessings. This is a crazy cockamamie plan. I overheard your father telling Esau that I want you to catch some game and serve me. I'll give you a blessing before I die. And Rebecca instructs Jacob to do it. To get dressed up, to impersonate, to masquerade as Esau and to come steal the blessings? And Jacob says, I'm going to do it. And Isaac is going to curse me. Jacob's been forced into this very difficult, this impossible situation. And he's given an assurance. 27, 13 of Genesis, his mother told him, if you are cursed, the curse will be on me. When he has to flee, he's about to spend 20 very, very difficult years with Laban. On some dimension, Laban is a villain worse than Pharaoh. And he is asked to build the entire Jewish nation, at least the framework of the nation, in this most spiritually treacherous environment. And if you look at the Parsha that talks about this, Parsha's Vayetze, there are no paragraph breaks in the whole Parsha. And that's to symbolize that Jacob didn't lose focus for 20 years, never forgot about what he's there to do. But what happens at the very beginning of that Parsha? Jacob stops to pray. And he has a dream. And he sees the ladder suspended to heaven. And the angels of God are ascending and descending. And God appears. And God tells him, the land that you're on, I will give to you. And your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And you will proliferate in every direction. And all the nations will receive their blessing via you. And I'll be with you and I'll guard you. And wherever you go, I will be at your side. And I'll bring you back to this land. And I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to abandon you. Before he's about to go into the furnace, into the pit, into the octagon with Laban, he's given a divine assurance. Chapter 46 Jacob's about to descend to Egypt. He's about to take this burgeoning family, this Jewish experiment, this fledgling nascent nation into the cesspool. You go into Egypt for hundreds of years. And again, God reassures him. Chapter 46, verse 2. Jacob, Jacob, here I am. Don't worry. Don't be scared. Don't worry about going down to Egypt. I'll make you a great nation there. I'll descend with you and I'll ascend also with you. Jacob, he's naturally deficient. He's naturally lacking the vav. He is placed naturally in the most trying of circumstances. That is his role. But in those conditions, not not only does he endure, does he survive, he thrives and he builds the nation. And all of his 12 children, 12 sons, plus his daughters, they're all righteous. He builds this incredible legacy that continues to endure even today. In the darkness, in the night, under the harshest conditions, Jacob flourishes. There will yet come a time where Jacob will forever retire the name Jacob and will only be known exclusively as Israel. Once Elijah comes and once he heralds the redemption, once we have this sunrise of eternal brightness, then Jacob will take the vav, give it back to Elijah, and retire the name Jacob forever. But until then, Jacob and all of us, all of his descendants who are retracing his life and retracing his challenges, we have to remember that like Jacob, 
he had an extra vav. We have to remember that there's a bright beacon at the end of the tunnel. And we have to know that we too have assurances that are needed to remind us when we're in the darkness that we will yet get out of it. We have the guarantee. We have the vav. Elijah will be here soon. Now, of course, this doesn't cover everything that there is in this Rashi. It's just a small little nugget that we picked off. But I think one that has a very valuable lesson for us. We have assurances that brighter times will yet come. And just as this helped Jacob, our forefather, to get through all those difficult times that he had to endure, it can help us as well. Our life is not just this unending period of being like Israel, having this Israel phase where things are just wonderful. We're firing on all cylinders and everything is just working out for us. Sometimes, again, before Elijah comes, if you're listening to the podcast, after Elijah comes, it's maybe a different story. But sometimes we are subject to being in a Jacob phase, in a naturally deficient phase, where things aren't, aren't working out well. We're, we're put in situations and circumstances that are difficult and that can destabilize us. We're going to have to encounter the various Labans and, and Asavs and Pharaohs of life. In those times, we have to remember that we're going to get through it. Redemption is around the corner. And that knowledge, this expanded, swelled name of Jacob with the Etrevav, that will keep us afloat. And we will endure as Jacob did. And we will flourish and thrive as he did as well. This too shall pass. And the future? The future is very bright indeed. Now, we had such an esoteric main segment of the podcast. Let's end off the podcast with a question, a fun one, an easy one. Parshas Bahar, it talks about Shemitah. Imagine you're a farmer. So God created a farmer. You're a farmer. And you're told you have to stop working for an entire year. A whole year, no work. And this is before unemployment and TANF and EBT. You're on your own. And this is an agrarian society. And everyone's taking a year off. That's a tremendous challenge. Think about what, what it's asking of people how much reliance of God you would have to have to be able to fulfill this mitzvah. And of course, the Midrash tells us that the mighty ones, who are the ones that, are, that really have spiritual might, those are the brave farmers that kept or that keep the laws of Shemitah. But the verse tells us that what if people say, what, what are we going to eat? If we're not going to plant, we're not going to plow, we're not going to till, we're not going to harvest, we're not going to do anything that contributes towards us eating, what will happen if you say, what am I going to eat on the seventh year? Seems like a perfectly legitimate question. So the Torah tells us, God will make a miracle. You're going to have a bumper crop on year six that will suffice for year six, year seven, and year eight. No need to worry. You have a nice big bumper crop. Take the sabbatical off. No problem. Because you have sufficient grain from last year. So here's the question. On one hand, Shemitah is this incredible mitzvah. Wow, the heroes, the farmers that are able to keep the Shemitah. Yeah, the Torah tells us they're going to have a bumper crop sufficient in year six to last for six, for seven, and for eight. How could it be that it's this incredible challenge in life? You got to stop working for a whole year and only rely on God and 
Not think about how you're going to feed your family. What's the challenge if you're you're paid ahead of time? It's like the guy who says, oh, Hashem, please let me win the lottery. I'll give 10% to charity. I'll tithe. And then he says, you know what, God? You just keep the 10 million. I'll just take the 90. That's the old joke they say. But if someone is given the blessing ahead of time, what's the test? Interesting question. This is a question I think most of us could probably conceive of an answer. I will tell you that in my notes, I have two answers to this question that I speculated, but I'm not going to tell them to you. Come up with your own answers. You don't have to, of course. It's all optional. Nothing's obligatory. But I appreciate your listenership. Nonetheless, whether you choose to answer or not, I appreciate it. It's an incredible blessing that I have. I'm very grateful that you've come here to listen. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, or at least 10% of how much I enjoyed it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and an incredible rest of your week and an uplifting, inspiring, encouraging, happy, cheerful Shabbos upcoming and from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, this is Yaakov Wolby saying bye-bye. I'll see you please God next week. Listen to the Parsha podcast. Share it with a friend. Listen to some of the other shows. And send me an email with your questions, your comments, your feedback. RabbiWolby at gmail.com.